Thanks, Joshua. Let's pray. Please give us eyes to see, ears to hear you, Jesus. Well, any of us over 50 may have had that humiliating experience when we've been wrestling with a computer or a smartphone and it won't do what we want. We finally call someone younger to help and they solve it with a few clicks. Obvious. Any of us in the art of motorcycle maintenance? To us. After reading this passage, we might all feel that something is meant to be obvious, but we're not sure what. What is this yeast, and why all the fuss about how many baskets? Yet this is a passage that really probes what is at work in the depths of our hearts. I'm going to sum it up in four words. Sign, side, and soft hearts. First, the sign. About 10 years ago, someone gave us a friendship cake batter. It's a kind of gluggy concoction that sits in the cupboard spelling yeasty. And when you cook it, you need to add a lot of things to make it taste good. Chocolate, raisins, food coloring, you name it. We called it Herman. And week by week, we would eat most of Herman up and then back he would grow again. It was yeast that was multiplying and making Herman less a cake batter and more a sinister presence in the pantry. (laughs) We eventually got rid of him, but he would be alive to this day if we hadn't. So Herman illustrates something of the power of yeast. Let's look at Mark 8. In verse 14, the disciples have forgotten to bring bread, or more literally, loaves and they have only one loaf in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warns them strongly. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. This is Jesus' first direct warning in the gospel, and it's a tiny parable. But what does he mean? As with Herman, the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod was obviously something small that works its way through the whole mixture, changing it completely. It's also something which will multiply. If it were a modern day parable, Jesus would probably speak of a computer virus. One click and your entire hard drive is corrupted and all your friends get an email with the virus and it costs your fortune to wipe the slate clean. Although There are similar passages in Luke 12 and Matthew 16 where the gospel writers explain yeast as hypocrisy or teaching. Only Mark mentions Herod and does not explain the parable. So we have to take Mark on his own terms using the context to help us. What is the context? Well, this warning follows on immediately from the Pharisees asking for a sign and Jesus' deep sigh and refusal to give one. The sign might have been some fantastic proof that Jesus is who he claims to be, like Moses turning his staff to a snake and back again in Exodus 4, or Elijah calling down fire from heaven. It's not a word that Mark uses for Jesus' miracles. But really, the demand for a sign is not about willingness to believe as much as an excuse for refusing to respond. We can see this in Mark's comment that it was to test them. 
to test him that they asked. And of course, the irony is that Jesus has just given an incredible sign in the feeding of the 4,000. So the demand reveals their lack of belief. The yeast of the Pharisees here is unbelief. I think we've all fallen into this trap or used it as a reason not to believe. Let me see a miracle with my own eyes. Let God turn up and write something in the sky or cure my dying mother and then I'll believe. And how does unbelief take hold in our lives and spread like yeast? How do we demand a sign from God, put up a test for him? Perhaps it's an unspoken demand. Give me a partner, give me a job, and then I will believe. We might probe our hearts now. Are we asking for a sign? Or are we staying away from God because we are hurt that he hasn't delivered? I wanted a partner. I wanted my health. I wanted a job. I wanted a friend. And you haven't given me one. I'm not talking about doubt. Who of us believes perfectly? And we know that our standing with God is secure. It's not dependent on the quality of our belief, but the one in whom we believe. Jesus reassures us about faith as small as a mustard seed. But we shouldn't kid ourselves that we are pursuing God if we come asking for a sign before we will trust. How can we work then against this yeast of unbelief? I think we can cry out like that boy's father in the following chapter, nine, I do believe, help my unbelief. And the opposite of unbelief is trust. We can say, I trust you. I know that you're faithful. I don't have what I want, and this world is broken. But I remember what you have given me, what you have done. You are the bread of life. I trust you, even in the darkness. Next, the side. What is the yeast of Herod? Well, as Joshua preached a few weeks ago, Herod Antipas was the Jewish king who was like the worst of the judges or the false shepherds of Israel, criticised by the prophet Ezekiel. Herod keeps God on the side by locking John the Baptist up, but still liking to hear him preach. He has a bet both ways. But then when it comes to the crunch, he needs to choose between God's kingdom and his own. He bows to Salome's request, the need to please his guests, his own power and prestige, not to ruin his lavish feast, and he serves up death on a platter as Joshua put it, John the Baptist's head. Don't kid yourself that if you keep God on the side, you are actually pursuing him. You can't just dabble with Jesus, have a bet both ways. As Jesus says later, what good is it for you to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? And in fact, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. We can't live in two kingdoms. 
We can't keep Jesus on the sidelines of our life. To do that is to end up killing him if you need to when it comes to the crunch. Herod is just as hostile as the Pharisees. Well, the disciples react to this parable uh, in an almost comic way. They just need to hear the word yeast and they're sure it's all about the bread supply situation. It's because we have no bread. Here are those on the inside to whom the secret of the kingdom of God has been given in Jesus' words, but they still don't get it. Left to their own devices, they are totally lost, like us. They are unable, it seems, to hear or see, and Jesus doesn't hold back now. They need to be woken up. He pours this torrent of questions over them, for which they have no answer except the single words 12 and 7. Why are you still talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see or ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Do you still not understand? The deaf man can hear in Mark 7, and the blind man is about to see when they arrive at Bethsaida. Even the Gentiles have responded, he has done everything well. But Israel, represented by the 12, is still blind and deaf. So it's no accident that Jesus' questions recall the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, giving that harshest rebuke to an Israel which has wandered far from God. And sadder still, they recall Jesus' own words, quoting from Isaiah about those outside the kingdom who are ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. I think this stinging rebuke happens because we are at such a crucial point in the gospel. Paul Barnett explains that this is the third significant crossing of the Sea of Galilee from west to east. Jesus has come from Decapolis, then he's crossed to Dalmanutha, where the Pharisees asked for a sign. Now he's heading towards Bethsaida. In the first crossing from west to east, Jesus calms the storm. He says, do you still have no faith? In the second crossing, he walks on water. And that's the evening after the feeding of the 5,000. And Mark comments, they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. You can hear the echoes in this passage. So this third crossing is arguably as significant as the other two much more dramatic crossings, walking on water, calming the storm, since it is about understanding who Jesus is. It's not enough to know what he's done. We need to understand what it means. The disciples can parrot back how many baskets were left over. They know the facts of what he has done, but they are yet to see what it means. And what does it mean? 
Well, only Mark's gospel stresses the number of baskets so strongly in its question and answer format, suggesting that these numbers matter. Jesus reminds them of his first feeding, five loaves, 5,000 men, though I do love the number of women and children in this painting, and 12 baskets, kofinos, a Jewish word, all significant Jewish numbers, echoing the five books of the Pentateuch, the 12 tribes of Israel. This feeding also happens among mainly Jewish people, so it points to Jesus as the promised Jewish Messiah. And then, as we heard Ruth explain last week, the second feeding and all the events leading up to it happen in mainly non-Jewish areas. There are seven loaves, seven baskets, spuris, a Greek word, Seven represents completion, like the seven days of creation, and also the entire world with its seven nations. Both feedings have echoes of God feeding his people Israel in the bre with bread in the desert, as well as the promised heavenly banquet when God will dine with his people. And this last feeding shows that Jesus is not just the hope of the Jews, but the hope of the whole world. His banquet will enfold all. So, the disciples should at least have understood that bread was not the issue after all those baskets, but at a deeper level, they should have understood who Jesus was. Yet there is hope in the middle of this rebuke with the word still. Do you still not see? It's not permanent. Only Jesus can bring about change, as he makes clear in the very next miracle, gradually restoring sight to a blind man. And then it's only after that that Peter's eyes are open to, and he can announce, you are the Messiah. That declaration is the turning point in the entire gospel, the climax of the whole first section. And it's this stinging rebuke and Jesus' miracle that have brought it about. So finally, soft hearts. In what ways are our own hearts hardened? Perhaps we're not a follower of Jesus. We've been listening to someone explain about him, but put forward a new problem for every explanation they give not because it's really at the core holding us back, but because it's a convincing sounding reason not to believe. We have decided already, we don't want to believe. This was the situation I was in. I didn't know what I did believe, but I was sure I didn't want to believe in Jesus. Yet if we're Christians, we're people whose hearts, hard hearts have been changed. We may have had a conversion experience or we may have gradually owned as our own the faith we've been brought up in. We've encountered Jesus and like Peter, we've fallen to our knees and said, you are the Messiah. Jesus has broken through our defences. Our hard hearts have been softened. Still, it's so easy for us to harden our hearts again, isn't it? When we close ourselves off to God or keep going through the motions of church or maybe even prayer, 
when we make important decisions without him, when we live as if he's irrelevant, or perhaps our life is going well and we realise we're becoming a bit indifferent, a bit dry. I just want to allow a moment for us to pause and bring our hard hearts to God or ask him to show us where we perhaps are hard. So let's just take a moment. can our hard hearts be softened again? I found Jesus' question of the disciples haunting. And don't you remember? For us, it has even more depth to it because we know more of the story. Don't we remember how he turned his face to Jerusalem after this, knowing he was going to his death? Don't we remember how he asked in Gethsemane, take this cup from me, Yet not what I will, but what you will. How he cried out on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. As his own heart was pierced and he was forsaken. And don't we remember, he is risen. Don't we remember all the times in our lives when he was there, in the storm, when he fed us, When we heard his voice, his word applied to our lives. The spirits whispered to us when we saw his love in his people and when he accompanied us in the dark. It is wonderful that this passage falls on a Sunday when we celebrate communion. We do this in remembrance of him. And as we do this, I hope it will be a foretaste of the heavenly banquet and that we will remember how he bled and died for us. Let's beware of the yeast of Pharisees or Herod, wanting a sign, keeping God on the side. Let's come to him with soft hearts, broken again by what he has done for us. Let's pray now. God, we come to you now grateful for all you have done for us and we remember. Amen.